0: The scripture lesson today comes from Revelation 2, 8 through 11. What is this? Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, Kate. I love hearing from you guys. I love it when you guys talk, because uh, I talk too much, but uh, but the Lord has called me to talk at this moment, and so I want to remind you of where we are. Uh, we are spending this semester, the whole semester, <laughs> looking at the famous last words of the last book of the Bible, it's the book of Revelation. And it's a book uh, that every week requires a lot of clarification before each sermon, I feel like, because this book is so famously misinterpreted. And so I've realized I can't do that like every week or I'm going to preach extra long sermons. And so I I did a lot of that in the first two sermons in this series. And so if you're curious about sort of the ground rules for interpreting this kind of slippery book called Revelation, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those online. But suffice to say for now that the book of Revelation is not about predicting the future. It's about revealing what's happening in the present, but in the unseen world of heaven. So it's a letter actually written to seven suffering churches in first century Asia to comfort them by pulling back that veil that separates heaven and earth to allow them to see their circumstances on earth in light of the circumstances of heaven. Does that make sense? It's allowing them to understand what's happening on earth in light of what's happening in heaven, to see this present world from God's perspective so they can receive strength to endure until God brings, uh, brings them into the glorious future where their suffering will be no more. It, Revelation is such a gift, actually. It's, it's so, uh, so sad that it's been misinterpreted because it's such a gift to the suffering church in all times and places to see that this world is not the whole story. At the end... The Christian faith will be worth it all. So interestingly, within the book of Revelation, especially here in the beginning, there are seven letters, uh, distinct letters to these seven churches in chapters two and three. And together, they provide these seven massively important messages for the struggling church on earth. And so we looked at the first letter last week, which was to the church in Ephesus. And to remind you, the message there was that above all, do not forsake your first love for God, for Christ. Whatever else you may lose in this world, that letter said, do not lose your first love for Christ and his gospel. So today we come to the second letter, and this second letter is to the church that's in Smyrna. And I think the message of this letter is this, is to protect the church from the lies that we are tempted to believe when suffering comes into our life. I think this letter, at at its heart, is to protect the church from the lies that we are tempted to believe when suffering comes into our life. You know this experience, the experience of suffering can make us question lots of things, can it? It's questions about God, about who he is, about who we are, about how the Christian life works. It's a time, I think, when we are most vulnerable to lies. That if these lies find a home in our hearts, they can have disastrous effects. So I think that's why this letter is written. And I think there are three particular lies about suffering that we are tempted to believe that this letter to the Church of Smyrna addresses. So I'm going to walk through those. The first one, the first lie is that the real reason for your suffering is your sin. This is interesting. I think the first lie is that the real reason for your suffering is your sin. So when it comes, when suffering comes into our life, that's, uh, I don't know about you, but it's kind of my first instinct is to assume it's because I've done something wrong, and this is God's way of, of punishing me. We assume the suffering is somehow our fault and that we are the root cause of it all. And this is nuance, and we're going we're gonna to walk through it. But I want to ask now, why is this our default mode as Christians? Well, it's because we know we are sinners, <laughs> every one of us. We know, we know we are sinners, and we know that sin deserves to be condemned. We confess almost every week that we sin every day in thought, word, and deed by what we've done, by what we've left undone, through ignorance, through weakness, and sometimes through our own deliberate fault. So we know know we're sinners, and so it's not a stretch in our mind that our suffering, when suffering comes in or trouble comes into our life, that it must be some sort of punishment for our sin. Now, we're talking about great mysteries here, as most of the book of Revelation is. There's a great mystery to suffering and to the ways of God. Sometimes we are suffering because of the natural consequences of sinful choices. For instance, if you drink too much, you will probably wake up the next day with a hangover. It's a natural consequence. If you lie, people may not trust you. If you break the law, you might go to jail. Right? Sometimes we do reap what we sow. And sometimes God does send difficulty into our lives to wake us up to the reality of some sort of unacknowledged sin in our lives. An example of this is Psalm 32. There, interesting, David uh, writes this psalm, King David, and he says that he felt the effects of his sin that he was covering up in his physical body. Remember, he said, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer interesting. We, we are human beings with body and soul, and sometimes a sickness in our soul can be experienced as a sickness in our body that God puts there to move us to deal with the root of our problem. So sometimes this, this is the way things work, but brothers and sisters, it is simply not true that all, or maybe even most, suffering is a direct result of our sin. There are actually too many examples in the Bible that would refute this. And the example that's before us today is the church in Smyrna. This is so fascinating. This, they are suffering intensely in Smyrna. Verse 9 says that God knows their tribulation. Verse 10 says it's about to get even worse. So suffering is obviously present in the church in Smyrna, but you know what's obviously absent? Is any sort of correction for their sins. If you remember last week, I said that all each of the seven letters follow the same pattern. They all follow the, the, the heart of this pattern is affirmation, correction, and motivation for the church. So affirmation, something the church is doing right, where Jesus says, "I see your good works, I see what you're doing," and then there's a correction for what the church is doing wrong, like last week. But I have this against you, Ephesus. You lost your first love, and then there's a motivation for the church to endure through faithful obedience. That's the pattern of every one of these, affirmation, correction, and motivation, except this one. This is the only one. This is the only church where they're not given any correction whatsoever, only affirmation and motivation. I think this is incredibly significant because I think what it means is that the real reason for their suffering is not their sin. This letter combats sometimes this insidious lie that the suffering that we have in our, in our lives is all of our fault. In fact, it's the exact opposite. These Christians are suffering because, not because they're faithless, because they're faithful to Jesus. Not because of unrighteousness, but for righteousness' sake. Because friendship with the God has made them an enemy of the world. In other words, the church of Smyrna is in the same category as Job. Remember this Old Testament book? Job suffered unspeakably, and his friends, his best friends, were assured that it had to be because of his sin, and they were relentless to try to get him to confess. And Job maintained his innocence throughout, but he learned through this ordeal that God is so much bigger, so much more mysterious, but so much more worthy of trust in the face of suffering. Because he's God, and we're not. Brothers and sisters, suffering tempts us, like Job, to curse God and die. It tempts us to believe such awful things, either about ourselves, that bad things always happen because our faith is insufficient. Has everyone ever told you that? It's such a damaging lie. It tempts us to believe such awful things about God. C.S. Lewis, following the death of his wife to cancer, He wrote a book about his experience of suffering. It's entitled A Grief Observed. It's an amazing book. Listen to what Lewis says. He says, not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is is not so there's no God after all, but so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourselves no longer. Or as one campus minister recently told me, his name might be Cam, he said, the questions people are asking today have shifted from, is God real, to is God good? The devil uses suffering to fill your head and your heart with such lies to keep you from believing the gospel, to keep you from believing in the goodness of God, because as Lewis said, believing that God is real but not good is perhaps even worse than believing that he's not real brothers and sisters, I I certainly cannot explain why we suffer so much. I can't explain why your friends suffer. But I do know that this letter to the church in Smyrna was written to help them and help us combat the lies that arise in the midst of suffering. And so we got to hold on to what we do know to be true. And I do know that if you are in Christ, if you have placed your faith in him and his life, death, and resurrection, then Jesus has already paid for your sins. Therefore, God has no interest in exacting payment from you whatsoever. I do know that one of the most significant shifts you have to make in your mind as a Christian is from seeing suffering as God's punishment to seeing it as God's preparation or participation to make you more like Christ. This is the pattern of every disciple. Every disciple is going to follow in the same pattern of Jesus himself, and that pattern is death then resurrection suffering then glory and i think that means that suffering is not the exception in the christian life it's the norm as we walk in the way of the christ in the way of cro- of the cross so the first lie is that the real reason for your suffering is your sin secondly the second lie is that your real enemy is other people your real enemy is other people look at verse 9 he writes, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Now listen, there are some hard, hard sayings in here. And so let's, let's sort it out together. It appears that what's happening in the church of Smyrna, that they are experiencing tribulation and poverty because of the slander of certain Jews. Now, to slander is to spread a false report about someone, right? And so there were some Jews who were spreading false reports about the Christians in Smyrna. To whom were they spreading these reports? Well, they're spreading them to Roman officials. Because remember, the, Rome, the Romans were in charge in first century Asia. It's their empires, their kingdom. And the cult of imperial Rome dominated every aspect of life in Smyrna. Socially, politically, economically. And every person throughout the empire was required to participate in this cult of Rome. Therefore, friends, the easiest way to get someone sideways with Rome is to let the officials know that they're not playing by the rules. They are not participating in the cult of Rome as they should. Maybe they're not acknowledging Caesar as God, as is required, Maybe they're not paying tribute to the Roman deities associated with their profession. You see, if you can convince Rome that these people are suspicious, that they are a threat, then Rome will bring down the brunt of their empire upon them to force them back into line. So it seems that some Jews were slandering Christians before Roman tribunals. And that is the reason why some of them had lost their jobs, and therefore were experiencing poverty, like I said in verse 9 word actually means extreme poverty, meaning these Christians lost their jobs and they were blacklisted from their field because of their conversion, their commitment to Christ. This Jewish slander is also why verse 10 says some of them are going to be thrown into prison. It's crazy. Being a Christian, the first century church of Smyrna came with serious cost to your economic, to your social advancement, even to your very freedom. And this is why it says that these slanderous Jews are called a synagogue of Satan. Because Satan, remember, according to Revelation 12.10, is the chief accuser of the brothers and sisters in Christ. It says there that he brings accusations against them day and night. So when these certain Jews are bringing accusations against Christians, they are acting the part of Satan himself, is what he's saying. Now, friends, I want to be perfectly clear here. This passage is not saying that every Jewish synagogue is a synagogue of Satan. Absolutely not. And we need to be perfectly clear about this because we live in a world that commits so much violence against Jewish people and against their houses of worship, like in Colleyville, Texas, just a week ago. So when we read passages like this, we have to to condemn anti-Semitism in the strongest words possible. And We must acknowledge that some passages like this are the ones that are twisted and used to fuel people's hatred. But that's not what this means. This passage is not saying that every synagogue is a synagogue of Satan. It is saying that some Jews were wrongfully accusing Christians of evil in Smyrna, and therefore they were playing the part of the chief accuser himself, Satan. And in fact, what's happening, the author is actually saying the exact opposite. Because by calling it a synagogue of Satan, he's saying your real enemy is not the Jews, but Satan himself. He's actually the one behind these accusations. Or in verse 10, notice he says that the devil is about to throw you into prison. That's not literal. Literally, the Romans are going to throw you into prison. But again, your real enemy is not the Romans, but the one who's behind all this, the devil. Do you see the point? <laughs> He is making it explicitly clear that your real enemy, Christians, it's not the Jews, it's not the Romans, it's not Caesar, it's not any human figure. Your real enemy is Satan himself. It's the same point the Apostle Paul makes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where he says, "...for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood." but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, I think this is so important today as it was then. Because when you are suffering, your natural instinct is to place a human face on that real enemy. We're doing it right now, depending upon what side you're on. The real enemy is the liberals, or it's the conservatives. The real enemy is the anti-vaxxers, or it's the vaccine mandators. The real enemy is religious people, or secular people. The real enemy is that coworker or your boss or that former friend, whoever it is that stands between you and the life you wanted for yourself, whoever it is that is making your life difficult. As the church is so divided right now, partly because we become convinced that the real enemy is each other. Brothers and sisters, that is the strategy of the devil. Precisely to keep you ignorant of the spiritual warfare being waged all around you, and to keep you occupied with hating and despising your neighbor instead of loving and serving them. See, the book of Revelation is urging us over and over and over again to look beneath the surface. It is Satan who is accusing you, not the Jews. It is the devil who is throwing you into prison, not the Romans. Our greatest enemy is not flesh and blood, but the spiritual forces of evil." You may remember in the second Hunger Games book slash movie, before Katniss Everdeen enters into the arena for a second time, the Hunger Games for the second time, to fight her fellow tributes to the death until there is just one victor, theoretically. Remember what her mentor Hamich says? He says, Katniss, when you're in the, in the arena, remember who the real enemy is, meaning The real enemy is not your fellow tributes from the other districts. The real enemy is President Snow, the evil ruler of the capital. So, brothers and sisters, I say to you, remember who the real enemy is, because this will change how you fight, how you battle. But most of all, please remember who is ultimately in charge. Though this passage reminds us that Satan is our real enemy, it also reminds us that God is the real ruler. He's the first and the last. He's the sovereign king over history. In fact, verse 10 says that the devil will throw them into prison that they may be tested. That word tested is fascinating. It actually indicates the intervening and the overpowering purpose of God. Meaning, he directs what Satan does for his own purposes. See, Satan sends suffering into your life to tempt you, to destroy your faith. But God turns temptation into a test that will actually strengthen your faith that it may become more genuine, even more precious, even more refined. He is so sovereign that he even determines the length of the testing. Notice 10 days. Again, per our rules for interpreting uh, the book of Revelation, that is not literal, but figurative, meaning a definite, full, but brief period of time. Because God is sovereign over it. So yes, know who the real enemy is, is, but more so, know who the real God is. He's the one who turns temptations into tests, faith destroyers into faith strengtheners. The second lie is that the real enemy is other people. And then lastly, the third lie is that your real treasure is in this life. The third lie that arises in our minds when we're suffering is that the real treasure is in this life. Think about it. Suffering is so difficult because it feels like we are being robbed of the treasures that we should have in this life. And if this life is all that there is, and suffering causes us to miss out on those treasures, whether it's health or success or comfort or wealth or family, then we can conclude that we are the people most to be pitied. Because suffering stole the good life from us. There's this interesting theme running through this passage using the imagery of a crown, which I think is so fascinating because I think this crown sort of represents a true treasure. So first of all, you wouldn't know this, but from studying, the city of Smyrna itself was known as the crown city or the city with a crown because the way it sat up on top of a hill and its magnificent architecture made it look like it was a crown up shining up in the sky. And furthermore, Smyrna fancied itself as a rival to the great Ephesus. They claimed to be the first city of Asia in beauty and in size. You see, I think the crown city represents the treasure of the city of man. A flourishing life and a flourishing city. And Smyrna was also famous because it had a particular loyalty to Rome. They demonstrated allegiance, faithfulness, and loyalty to the crown of Rome, Far beyond their contemporaries, I think this represents the treasure of political power, of trading privileges and benefits of loyalty to the powers that be. So, with that background, think about it: how how amazing it is that when Jesus says in verse ten that they are faithful to King Jesus unto death, if they are loyal to the city of God to the end, they will receive the crown of life. It hits home in a way to the Smyrnans that is that is precious. It is intense. Because what it's doing is it's challenging them to assess where their real treasure is. Is it in the crown city of Smyrna or the heavenly city of God? Is it in faithfulness to Caesar or is it in faithfulness to Jesus? Is it an earthly treasure or in heavenly treasure? And friends, I think the same thing happens to us when suffering has the same effect. It forces us to reevaluate, to evaluate the treasure that we are living for. What is your real crown? What is your real treasure? And like Revelation does throughout the entire book, it challenges us to look at things from two perspectives, the perspective of earth and the perspective of heaven. So from this passage alone, from the earthly perspective, these Christians are in poverty. But from the perspective of heaven, they are rich. Notice that little parenthesis? But you are rich because you have the very inheritance of Christ. From the earthly perspective, they are missing out on the good life in the crown city. But from the view of heaven, they are already citizens of the heavenly city of God, the most desirable city in the universe. From the earthly perspective, they are at odds with the most powerful king in the world. From the heavenly perspective, they are at peace with the Lord of heaven and earth. From the earthly perspective, they have lost their freedom because they're thrown into jail. From the heavenly perspective, they have gained the greatest freedom that has ever existed. Forgiveness of their sins. Adoption into God's family. From the earthly perspective, you should most fear the first death. That is the loss of life in this world. For from the heavenly perspective, you should most fear the second death. That would be the loss of life in the world to come. From the heavenly perspective, the crown of life, your deepest treasure, is found in riches, in power, or comfort. But from the heavenly perspective, the crown of life is given as a gift from Christ and from Christ alone. You see the point? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And whatever you find most worthy, whatever is your crown, metaphorically speaking, whatever you find most desirable, that is what you will be faithful to unto death. So, if your treasure is in wealth or status, you will be faithful to that unto death. You will sacrifice. You will give yourself fully to the next achievement, to the next promotion, to the next job, on and on. But notice, brothers and sisters, for Jesus, what was his greatest treasure? What did he sacrifice? What was he faithful to unto death? It was you, it's his church, it's his children. You are his treasure for which he was faithful unto death, even death on a cross. You are the treasure that he sacrificed everything for. He went all the way through the first death already for you. He died and rose again so that the same can happen to you. Because he has power now to bring you through the first death into the treasure that you really seek. Eternal life in heaven. This is the true crown of life. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I struggle with each of these lies all the time, but especially when suffering comes into my life or the lives of those who are dearest to me. I can believe that the real reason for my suffering is God's punishment for my sin rather than my participation in the way of Christ. Death and resurrection It might be because you're being faithful, actually, not faithless. I can believe that my real enemy is those who are inflicting my suffering rather than seeing the spiritual warfare happening underneath the surface. I can believe that the real treasure is life on this earth, and therefore I am to be most pitied if suffering is taking away that treasure. Friends, what a comfort that the church has been wrestling with these lies from the beginning. But what a greater comfort that the the truth can set you free. That the real enemy is Satan. He has been conquered by King Jesus, the Lamb is overcome. The real, the real pity is if we have hope in this life alone, if there is no resurrection from the dead. Jesus said, "In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world." Amen. Let me pray as ask God to help us. Father, we admit before you that we struggle with suffering. We struggle to understand it. We struggle to go through it. We struggle to see our friends and those we love go through it. And we confess that we allow these lies to to come into our heads and to our hearts. Lord, we ask for your help today, that you would unseat those lies and replace it with your truth. Allow us to see what is true treasure and what is true life, that we will be faithful to you, Jesus, to your kingdom, to your city, even unto death, because you are faithful unto death for us. Help us, Lord, by your Spirit to endure suffering with the truth, with the vision that you've given us to the church in Smyrna and to the church today. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.